Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Berg. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, welcome to today's podcast. I'm here with my co-hosts, Todd Pruitt and Amy Bird, as always. We're especially privileged today to have on the line uh, Wesley Smith, who has written a number of books dealing with the, the complicated field of bioethics. Gone are the days in the church where the most complicated ethical question you were likely to face was maybe one about sex before marriage or, or, or abortion. Uh, the world of, of medicine has become incredibly complicated and incredibly entwined with the world of politics and, uh, and social thought over the last decade or two. And many Christians now find themselves facing all kinds of complicated challenges for which many of us, and include those of us who are pastors in that, many of us feel very ill-equipped uh, to address Wesley Smith is someone who's written, as I say, a number of very helpful and important books on issues such as animal rights uh, and euthanasia. So it's a real pleasure to have you on the program with us today, Wesley. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks. I wonder if you'd like to start by just telling us uh, how you got into this field, because I know you started off as, as a lawyer, but <laughs> you moved into this area really due to some fairly significant personal experiences. Yes, uh, I got into this mess, if you will, uh, because uh, back in 1992, I had a friend who committed suicide under the influence of Hemlock Society literature. Hemlock Society uh, at that time was the most notable and prominent assisted suicide advocacy group. It's now changed its name to the more euphemistic compassion and choices, but it still has the same deadly goal, which is legalizing euthanasia and assisted suicide. My friend uh, was not terminally ill. Uh, she was. She had leukemia, uh, which was treatable. She had some pain. She wasn't taking her medications. She needed a hip replacement, but was barely limping. But she had decided that suicide was an empowering thing because of this literature. Mm. Uh, and she killed herself on her 76th birthday. Uh, uh, when her suicide had occurred, I thought, something's really wrong here, something's off. So I called her executrix, and I said, please send me, uh, her name was Frances, Frances's suicide file, because Frances was the most organized person I've ever met. And sure enough, uh, Frances uh, had a suicide file. She also had a Wesley file with my clippings, which, which uh, was bittersweet for me, as you can imagine. Mm. Uh, but in that, in that file with all these hemlock quarterlies, how to commit suicide, what drugs to use, how to use a plastic bag, and I was so enraged by this because Fran Francis's friends were trying to keep her engaged in life, and these, I call them whisperers, were basically saying, kill yourself, kill yourself, wow. it's empowering, it's empowering. And there were proselytizing stories of suicide. Uh, I remember one that I, you know, it's a long time ago, and I remember it to this day, and I can quote it. My, my loved one laughed and giggled and seemed to relish the experience. My, and Francis had underscored that in yellow. And I was, I was so enraged by this, teaching people how to commit suicide and giving them moral permission to do it. Mm. 
that I wrote a piece for Newsweek magazine uh, called The Whispers of Strangers. Uh, and it appeared on Ju uh, June 28th, 1993 and changed my life. I didn't expect it to. I thought this was going to be a one-off. At that time, I was writing books with Ralph Nader, the consumer hmm. advocate. And I got so much hate mail from what I considered to be an uncontroversial article. Wow. You know, suicide is good, suicide is noble, may you lead a long and suffering life, this kind of thing. I received more than 100 letters. Now remember, this is before email. This is when, when you wanted to write, you actually had to sit down and put a pen to paper or a typewriter to paper, and you then had to fold this thing and put it in something called an envelope. <laughs> And address it and put a stamp on it. So when people wanted to send hate mails, they were really uh, motivated to do so. Uh, and I was so stunned by what I thought was uncontroversial that I thought, what has happened to my culture and where was I when it happened? Uh, and uh, at the same time, a group called, at that time, the International Anti-Euthanasia Task Force, now called the Patient Rights Council, reached out to me. And I said, you know, uh, what your, your work is very important. I'm really stunned at, at uh, what's happening here. I have some skills I think you could use. I'll be glad to help out. And uh, before I knew it, uh, uh, I had shifted approach uh, and was pursuing an anti-euthanasia, anti-assisted suicide advocacy full time. And then that led me to see even more broader threats uh, to the sanctity of human life, which uh, led me to uh, get into the area of bioethics more generally, which brings us to the culture of death, the age of do harm medicine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which we've been reading this book and have been challenged and sobered uh, by it. It's it's an important book, uh, Culture of Death. And I, I wonder for our listeners, if you could maybe give a brief definition of bioethics. I think sometimes people, when they hear that term, might think of it as some kind of very clearly defined monolith or a, or, or a very clearly defined discipline. You go and you get your degree in bioethics and then magically become a bioethicist. Help kind of sort through some of those Yeah, I was shocked thoughts. when I read about that. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, bioethics is a contraction for biomedical ethics, mm -hmm. and it's a field uh, more or less of philosophy. Uh, that began in the late 60s, early 70s, as, uh, for example, the kidney uh, dialysis machines were coming online, and there were more, there was a greater need than there were people who, uh, I mean, than there were machines yeah. to, to fill that need. And there started a discussion over how do we deal with the increasingly high-tech uh, medical system, and, and uh, uh, what happened was you ended up with kind of a contest between two different approaches. One was led by Paul Ramsey, and it's really a shame that it lost in the general view of bioethics. Paul Ramsey was a great theologian, a very uh, notable Christian activist, I mean ethicist, uh, and he took the position of, for example, he wrote a book called The Patient as a Person, and uh, that helped lead to one of the few, I think, really important contributions of bioethics which was that people have a right to refuse unwanted medical interventions on medical medical treatment. So if you don't want to be hooked up to tubes at the end of your life, you have a right to say no and, and not be hooked up to tubes at the end of your life. Mm -hmm. Because uh, Paul Ramsey said, look, if you're imposing these kinds of what can be onerous procedures on people when they don't want it, you're not treating the patient as a person. The other person uh, who contested with Paul Ramsey was the inventor of relativism, a utilitarian philosopher named Joseph Fletcher. And Joseph Fletcher 
denied that human beings have the uh, intrinsic dignity or and denied literally and, and quite explicitly the sanctity of human life. He said that being human is morally irrelevant mm. to uh, moral value. What matters are capacities. Uh, and that has since, uh, him, he said, to whether you earn your humanhood, that has since become in bioethics whether or not a human being is a, quote, person, close quote. And so the difference between the minority school of bioethics, uh, where you treat the patient as a person, and the uh, mainstream view of bioethics is that some people can be treated as if they were not persons. And that has opened up not only euthanasia and assisted suicide, but advocacy for, for example, live harvesting people like Terry Schiavo. Mm -hmm. The idea that infanticide is an acceptable practice. Peter Singer of Princeton University has been a primary promoter of that. That people like uh, uh, Terry Schiavo can be used for medical experiments. Now, some of these things are not yet happening. For example, the live harvesting is not happening. But it has put us into a clear and present danger of turning healthcare from a do no harm, as in the Hippocratic tradition, Hippocratic Oath mm -hmm. tradition, to an enterprise in which harm is actually uh, imposed intentionally. For yeah. example, euthanasia. And what they just say, well, that's not harm, that's beneficent. Well, they've redefined what harm consists of. Mm -hmm. And so you see this kind of evolving uh, uh, utilitarian view that what matters isn't the sanctity of human life, it's the quality of that life. And you even have doctors now beginning to be empowered to say no to wanted life-sustaining treatment based on their view or a bioethics committee's view of the quality of a patient's life. So you have people being thrown out of ICUs, in essence, uh, even though they want that treatment to stay alive. Mm -hmm. And so doctors, in some regards, are presuming the right to say, what is a life worth living? And that's a very dangerous thing. And part of the reason I wrote Culture of the Age of Do Harm Medicine is to let people be forewarned is forearmed. I'm not saying these things will happen to you, but you have to be prepared if, if a loved one uh, is seriously ill, elderly, disabled, uh, to fight for their value. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, pastors. I can, part of the reason I wrote this is I want pastors, to, even though I don't take a specifically Christian approach to this, I want pastors to be aware that if, if one of their parishioners comes into their study and says, you know, grandma had a stroke, as you know, pastor, and they're saying they don't want to give grandma a feeding tube because she's never going to regain the uh, ability to, to speak well and walk well. The pastor shouldn't just say, oh, well, that's nuts. What you, you must be mistaken. Yeah. The pastor mm -hmm. should understand, well, that might be happening right. and, and, and take it seriously and then think about what can be done uh, to investigate that circumstance and counsel their, their parishioner. Yes, as I was talking to my husband while I was reading through your book, I said to him, it's, you almost have to read it yourself because I feel like if I'm telling you about these case studies, <laughs> that it doesn't even sound real. What has well, been it happening? Is really, it is really shocking. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why I have hundreds and hundreds of footnotes. Right. Uh, because, uh, you know, these are not things where I'm not saying, oh, because we accept A, we're going to end up right. with Z. Right. It's what I'm saying is, these are facts on the ground. These are mm -hmm. things that are happening, actually happening, or things that are being advocated at the highest levels of, of the power structure. Right. In many ways, uh, mainstream bioethics uh, is like eugenics. Eugenics was uh, in the uh, early part of the 20th century, and it denied human exceptionalism. It denied the equal dignity of all human beings and 
graded in distinctions, discriminatory distinctions between the fit and unfit. And the, uh, the uh, Margaret Sanger is just one example, was a huge mm -hmm. eugenicist. She was also a social Darwinist. And she believed that uh, the weeds should be uh, pulled right. that, uh, to improve the human herd, if you will. And that led to, uh, in the United States, 60 to 70,000 voluntary sterilizations based on this pseudoscience of eugenics. Mm. Eugenics was not a bottom-up movement. It was not a grassroots movement. It started from the high levels of the universities, from the uh, places like the Carnegie Institute, which funds a lot of this, the, the uh, very left-wing uh, foundations that are uh, you know, rolling over with money to fund this kind of thing. Bioethics is, from the, is, is more or less the same thing. It is coming from the universities. It is coming from the top down. These are the people who are, are teaching the doctors of tomorrow, the nurses of tomorrow, the government and business leaders of tomorrow. And unless the uh, bioethicist, it's, it's not a monolith, but there is a mainstream view. It is more or less an orthodox. Uh, and unless the bioethicist has a modifier in front of the term, such as conservative bioethicist mm. or Catholic bioethicist, something like that, you can almost be sure that that the general view that being human in and of itself is irrelevant is accepted. And the idea of a quality of life ethic versus a sanctity of life ethic is accepted. The idea that healthcare rationing is going to be necessary. The idea that euthanasia and assisted suicide should be promoted. And by the way, not just for the terminally ill. Right. Uh, in, in Belgium, just as an example, you know that article I wrote in Newsweek back in 1993, one of the things I worried about was I said, you know, if you're not, if we go down this road, someone's going to have the idea of conjoining euthanasia and assisted suicide with organ harvesting mm -hmm. as a plum to society. That is precisely what is happening now in Belgium and the Netherlands, where when the society generally accepts the culture of death premises, then, well, they're going to die anyway. Let's get mm -hmm. some good out of it. Right. And so you have mentally ill people in Belgium and in the Netherlands, disabled people in Belgium and the Netherlands being euthanized and then their organs harvested. And uh, I, I quote in the book um, one study written up in a reputable uh, healthcare medical transplant journal that followed four patients who are brought to the hospital. They're not terminally ill. They are killed. And then their lungs are harvested, and they said, well, gee, this worked really well. So I thought, who were these patients? A couple, the three of them were people like with multiple sclerosis. One of them was mentally ill. And you know what that mm. mental illness was? Self-harming. So this, quote, treatment, close quote, for self-harming was to kill the patient and wow. then harvest the organs. Wow. I can think of nothing more wow. dangerous than telling somebody who's having a terrible time getting through the night because of uh, anguish or, or depression that their deaths have greater value mm. than their lives. Oh, but that is terrible. precisly what is happening in the euthanasia juggernaut in Belgium and the Netherlands. And it is the logical consequence of deciding that, that the purpose of society is to prevent suffering and that killing is an acceptable answer to the problem of human. Right. And once you come to, to define human life, uh, primarily, if not strictly, on the basis of utility, then there's really yes. no good reason to not do that. that. That's absolutely right. When you decide that human life is of no intrinsic value, well, then why not? If right. all we are is meat on the hoof, then let's treat us like meat. But the problem is that once you accept that premise, there's no chance for universal human rights. In order to have universal human rights, each and every human being has to have equal moral value simply and merely because we're human. If you say some humans have greater value than others, then those with greater values are 
are determined by people with the power to decide, and then the people with the power to decide decide that the people of must have been treated in ways that are invidiously discriminatory, oppressive, and sometimes involve the killing of their uh, and extinguishing of their lives. And this, I think, brings us into the kind of realm of pop culture. Uh, When you were describing what's going on in Belgium and the Netherlands there, Wesley, I was reminded of, remember years ago when I was doing some work, some bit of historical research on the Holocaust, uh, watching, uh, I think, a a film called Das Ein Ohne Leben, German propaganda film from the 1930s, which was advocating the the euthanizing of of mentally disabled children. And in retrospect, this was clearly softening the ground, intentionally or otherwise, who knows, but softening the ground for for the Holocaust. Now, obviously, anybody who plays the... This is leading to... uh, By the way... Sorry? Ich klage ein. There's also uh, the propaganda movie Ich klage Ah. ein, which is I accuse... Yeah. And the the uh, plot of I accuse, there were two plots. One was a baby born with severe disabilities and that uh, we should put that baby out of the baby's misery and the family's misery. And the other was a woman uh, who, had, who was a great pianist who developed multiple sclerosis who wanted to die. And her husband was a doctor and he, put, he kills her. And then he's put on trial, and at the end, he looks at the juror at the camera and says, no, I accuse you of wanting people to suffer in this kind of thing. That is the very premise mm-hmm. that we see now carried out in uh, places like in Canada, where, where the Supreme Court is just mandate euthanasia across the country and not just for the terminally ill. Mm-hmm. Belgium, the Netherlands, the same things, the same attitudes developing in the states where assisted suicide has been legalized in Oregon and Washington and California, supposedly for the terminally ill, although I've, I document some cases where that wasn't true. This is an incredibly dangerous thing because our values will follow definitions. And if we mm-hmm. define uh, some human lives as having less value because they're difficult, then that's going to lead to very, very real trouble. But I have to say, even the Nazis that got into things like uh, infanticide uh, and killing the disabled, that wasn't something the Nazis invented. That came out of eugenics. Mm -hmm. The Nazis just accepted the premises that had already been accepted in the United States and the United Kingdom, Canada. For example, the Nuremberg Laws of 1934 in Germany were patterned after California's eugenics law. Wow. So it wasn't people saying, if you say, oh, well, that's the Nazis, well, that can bounce off people's heads. But realize it wasn't the Nazis that did it. It was the Nazis applying philosophy that preexisted the Nazis, which was eugenics and social Darwinism. And that kind of thing is rearing Mm -hmm. its ugly head again. Yeah, you put it so well in the book. You say the ethics of medicine are a good indicator of the moral health of society and that when medical practice is corrupted, society is soon to follow. And you illustrate or, that I'm not so sure. well. Chicken or the egg, but uh, <laughs> they, they are connected. What about the Hippocratic Oath, though, Wesley? I can imagine somebody coming around saying, yeah, but doctors still have to take the Hippocratic Oath. They're yeah, still committed uh, to saving life, not destroying it. Were it so, Hippocratic Oath is no longer taken by doctors. Uh, when they graduate medical school, they tend to take uh, oaths that are mostly pablum, you know, not specific. Like the Hippocratic Oath specifically prohibited abortion and and assisted suicide. Those are gone because they don't meet with modern maxims. So you'll see things such as, uh, I promise to do what is right. Well, that becomes very subjective and, and it's very bland. So rather than having specific parameters to guide medical practice under the oath, doctors today don't take the oath. 
In fact, the oath cuts against the, the current uh, uh, grain of society and the trends of society. And that's why I urge doctors who do believe in the Hippocratic Oath to hang it in their, uh, hang it in their, uh, their waiting rooms and, or put plaques mm -hmm. up saying this is a, an assisted suicide-free zone, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And by the way, the, the thing that really has me concerned is what I call medical martyrdom. That is, there is now an effort afoot in a, a lot of places to force doctors to both euthanasia and abortion. That is, if they are asked, for example, a, a law in uh, uh, Victoria, Australia, if a doctor is asked to perform an abortion and the doctor has a religious or a conscience objection, then the doctor is required uh, by the law to, to, if he won't do it or she won't do it, to find a doctor who will. In other words, to procure an abortion mm -hmm. for the patient. Mm -hmm. I know of one doctor who was already medically disciplined because he refused to refer for a sex selection abortion. In Montreal, in Quebec, uh, where they now have legal euthanasia, a palliative care center in McGill Ho University Hospital would not permit assisted suicide, they don't do assisted suicide, it's lethal injection euthanasia in their clinic. They said, well, if a, one of our patients in our palliative care unit wants to be killed, we're going to have to move them to a different part of the hospital because palliative care and killing are not the same thing. Minister of Health said, "You better stop that policy," mm. and they are now, and they now will kill in that palliative care center. Mm. The Medical uh, Association of Ontario—it's called the uh, the—they call them medical colleges up there, but it's like our medical associations in the states—has said, as an ethics ethical matter, if you are asked by a legally qualified patient to kill that patient, if you have a conscientious objection, you have to go. Out and find the doctor who will. So this this puts doctors in a in a real conundrum. They they face medical martyrdom. Mm -hmm. Either they do the deed and become morally complicit in it, e even if it's finding the death the death doctor to do the killing. That's moral complicity, or they risk medical discipline. And you're going to get to the place if these trends continue, where you won't be able to find a doctor who won't kill you under some circumstances. The point here mm -hmm. is to drive. Christ, Orthodox Christian, small o, Orthodox Christian, Muslim, uh, Jewish doctors, pro-life doctors, Hippocratic oath-believing doctors and nurses and pharmacists out of the field. Yeah. That's stunning. Um, it what, is stunning. To what extent do you think pop culture is playing into this? Because you, obviously you make a very good case for saying this is, this is an elite thing in its origin. But clearly it has pop to... Culture. Pop culture pushes this uh, hard. How many times have we seen pro-assisted suicide television right, shows yeah. and movies? Mm -hmm. uh, there's, a, there's a motion picture out now, um, you, Me Before You yep. or something like that. I forgot yep. the title of That's it. That's it. In which a, the, uh, it pushes euthanasia for people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. wow. The disability rights community, oh, yeah, which, right. by the way, is very liberal politically, very secular, generally speaking, in their outlook, certainly not pro-life when it comes to abortion, are the most implacable opponents of assisted suicide and euthanasia because they say we're the targets, and they're right. absolutely right. And they that are. movie is propaganda saying that that life with death is better than life with disability. You mm -hmm. also saw another movie with Clint Eastwood called Million Dollar Baby. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A Million Dollar Baby is about a, a female boxer who is injured in a boxing match. She becomes quadriplegic, and she demands that Clint Eastwood, her trainer, her mentor, kill her. 
Now, imagine what could have happened if instead of killing her, as happens in the movie, Clint Eastwood said, no, I'm not going to kill you. Come on, we're going to fight. You were able to fight before. We're going to fight again. And you could, have had, you could have had an ending where this woman with quadriplegia went on, as often happens, to lead a completely good and fulfilling life. Maybe she's giving a speech saying, never give up. Instead, they push the pernicious idea that killing is is and death is better than quadriplegia and and again the disability rights community was just appalled because they said you're talking about us you're talking about our lives having less value it's it's like racism only different victims mm. it reminds me of one of the one of the most powerful sections in the book wesley was when you you talk about children born with severe disabilities and how even if they only live for two three four years they can have two, three or four years of love and, and care. And I emailed you actually a couple of weeks ago with the story of a Westminster student's uh, young child who died in similar circumstances. And it really struck me that that's a powerful point you made. That just because the child doesn't make it to adulthood doesn't mean that they can't be a beautiful person for 18 months, for two themselves, years, three years. That's right. And, and for their families. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yet in the Netherlands where euthanasia is legal, even though it's technically illegal to kill babies, infanticide is a normal part of a medical practice there now if the baby is severely disabled or if the baby is born with a terminal condition. Uh, There's something your listeners can look up called the Groningen Protocol, G-R-O-N-I-N-G-E-N. It is a bureaucratic checklist for which babies can be killed and openly there is no consequence. And to show you the the trend of of culture, Mm. The Groningen Protocol was published without criticism and with all due respect in the New England Journal of Medicine. Mm. Wow. Mm. Wow. Well, it just reminds me, too, with the influence of of pop culture. Um, You know, first, how shocked I was to see when these Planned Parenthood videos came out with with, uh, selling organs of aborted babies on Facebook, on social media. And as a a Christian, um, I was horrified to see those you know videos but then i don't know it was maybe even more horrifying to see the the lack of reaction exactly from so many because yeah we are we are being acclimated to a culture of death mm-hmm. i wrote a piece for the weekly standard when that occurred and and i said people are expecting huge uh, consequences for planned parenthood i said don't expect that you're just setting yourself up for disappointment mm-hmm. because you take a look at jack of Orkian, Mm-hmm. And the people he was, he, most of the people he helped kill were not terminally ill. Five weren't even ill upon autopsy. Most were people with disabilities. And, and there was a, a brief eruption of, of uh, upset. And then he ended up with good poll numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he even had a, uh, a biography of him starring uh, um, Al Pacino. Al Pacino. Yeah. Uh, and it won awards. And he was getting $50,000 a speech at the, at the, toward the end of his life. Uh, you saw the Terry Schiavo situation where a, a young helpless woman uh, was dehydrated to death painfully slowly over two weeks to the cheering of the of the country. Right. Even though her blood family said we want to take care of her for as long as she lives at the, at the uh, request of her husband, even though he was living with another woman, had two children with her, so he had actually abandoned his marriage. Right. The, the, the society cheered. The Terry Schiavo situation, the um, Jack of Orkin situation, and I think the the circling of the wagons to protect the the, the butchers of Planned Parenthood, mm-hmm. uh, as I look at them in, in some regards, 
are tipping points and they're they're indicators of 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 how little people want to look at what's actually happening and value lives that are difficult. Now, Wesley, we know you, you write for the Discovery Institute and you also write sometimes for First Things online. Uh, I have a, every other week, yeah, I have a bi-weekly column for First Things. Uh, extremely helpful. I want to commend those to, to any listeners. Thank you. I also have a blog on National Review called Human Exceptionalism. Okay, right. excellent. Right. Yeah, uh, what other things should pastors lay people be reading in order to obviously that we have limited time that they're not going to be able to be experts in this field but what sort of things should we be reading to orient ourselves so that we have some answer for people when we're faced with these kind of challenges you know that's a that's a very important question and a good question if people want to know for example about the truth about euthanasia and assisted suicide just from a factual basis or want to research it the Patients' Rights Council, with which I still consult the people who got me into this mess, <laughs> uh, uh, they have, I think, the best and most extensive library of what is happening all around the world. Uh, I think that, that uh, since we are living in an anti-Christian culture these days, I don't call it post-Christian, it's anti-Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you can see, Christians are being driven out of public life. They are being punished for exercising their faith. Uh, I think... Uh, you also need to read secularly based arguments because uh, it's not just Christians who would oppose these views. It's anybody who mm-hmm. believes in universal human rights and human equality. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, the approach I take in my work. Um, right. I, I just think people have to also focus on living their own lives and defending uh, people who uh, are being marginalized. Let me give you an example. I'm old enough to when uh, racism was very, very virulent in this country. And uh, I was, you know, coming of age during during the civil rights era. And uh, there was a lot of advocacy at that time uh, to the white community saying, listen, if people start telling you racist jokes, you know, in a white community issue or somebody uses the N word, you stop that and you say that's racist. And, you know, that that really did make a difference because people stopped finding it. It stopped being legitimate Mm. to express those kind of views. And it changed attitudes. Yet people today will hear, well, that person's a, quote, vegetable, close quote. The V word is a as a pernicious epithet. So no human being. Yeah. Yeah. No human being is a carrot or a rutabaga. Mm -hmm. You could call somebody who is profoundly disabled, persistently unconscious. You do not have to and should not ever call anybody a V word because and I've been striving to get people to. To, with very diff- with difficulty, even among pro-lifers, oh, well, that, that, that's, that's different. It's not different. It's not different. No one should be called the V word. If you're walking down the street and you see somebody with a friend and, and somebody, say, is in a wheelchair across the street or in a difficult circumstance, and they say, you know, if I were like that, I'd go to Kevorkian. You mm-hmm. go to defend the intrinsic value of that person's life. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, and, and just say, listen, this is not acceptable. There are ways to care for people properly and alleviate pain. That is certainly a human duty. But killing is is not acceptable. And I want to leave your listeners with one uh, thought for them, because I think they should ponder it now rather than wait. There is a real risk of social martyrdom for every one of your listeners. Right now in the United States, about 13 to 14% of the people live in states where assisted suicide is legal. California, Vermont. Uh, Oregon and Washington specifically by statute. 
And it's quite possible you might get a call from Sister Sue, and she calls and she'll say, hey, uh, you understand Grandma has cancer. She's got about five months to live. She's decided she's dying next Tuesday. She wants you to be here. Mm. In other words, that you are being asked to attend assisted suicide. Mm. If you say yes and go, one, you're validating the suicide. Mm -hmm. Two, you're becoming morally complicit in the suicide. Three, you're sending a message to grandma that her worst fears are true. Yes, you are a burden. Mm -hmm. Yes, your life isn't worth living. Yes, you will die in agony. Yes, we will have bad memories of you if you, uh, go, if you uh, die over a period of time and, and lose your looks and so forth and so on. If you don't go, you endanger yourself with uh, family ostracism. How dare you judge grandma? How dare you impose your Christian faith on grandma? Mm -hmm. How dare she help put you through college? So you may face a dilemma of either being part of suicide or risk family relationships. And everyone's going to, who's listening, faces that potential and has to think very, very carefully now, before need, what would they do and what they would say. I would hope people would say, Grandma, I'm sorry. I cannot be there for a suicide, but here's what I can do for you. Let me do this. Let me do that. Let me love you. Let me help care for you. I want you in life. I, I, you're not a burden and this kind of thing. People need to be aware that that is a potential and they need to, and pastors need to be aware and be ready to help uh, their parishioners uh, should that, should that uh, situation arise uh, uh, in, their, in their congregation. Wow. Yeah, that's good. That's such good advice. Thank you so much, Wesley, for being on to talk with us today. And um, we're really excited that we be, were able to give away several copies of your book to our listeners. Um, so if you just want to subscribe to our blog and you can enter to win a copy of Wesley Smith's book, The Culture of Death, I think it will be a great opportunity for you to get that for free. So go on over to our site, mortificationofspin.org. And do remember that we're donor-supported podcasts, and we appreciate your support and your prayers as well. Thanks, Wesley, for being on with us today. Thanks. I appreciate it a lot. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And come back next week for this conversation. With what we're experiencing with the internet these days our brains are physiologically changing nicholas carr has written a book about that called the shallows to where we're, we're really just readers to gather information more rather than to uh, read for understanding so today we're going to talk a little bit about how to read a book right guys I, I I have to admit I've I've been reading a lot of the uh, the the educational political philosopher James Charles recently, 
and he cites peanuts on almost every other page. And he has completely opened my eyes to the depth of social critique and clever philosophy in peanuts. That's next time on Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. I'm, I'm uh, just before you called. I'm watching the open. <laughs> oh, those those courses are brutal. <laughs> when you guys invented golf, you were cruel. <laughs>